So it's pretty amazing um, how quickly praising can turn into grumbling. It's amazing. This happens to me all the time. So I'll be driving down the road, you know, singing a worship song, just tears running down my face. You know, I'm like, shout to the Lord, all the earth, you know. And then somebody cuts me off. I'm like, what the heck are you doing, idiot? Still tears running down my face. It can change just like that. I mean, just like that, in an instant. And you know what? That's exactly what we see from Israel today in our text. If you're new with us, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Exodus. Uh, And in last week's text, we heard Israel just joyfully singing praises to Yahweh. You know, tears running down their faces. Their hearts were full. Their spirits exuberant. But just a few days later, in the very next verses, (laughs) Israel already has big, big problems with their God. Big problems. So let's turn there now. Today we come to Exodus chapter 15, and we'll look at verses 22 through 27. So last week we looked at the first part of chapter 15. And we'll look at the end of chapter 15 today. If you don't have your Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Exodus 15, we'll start with verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them, and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in His eyes, if you pay attention to His commands and keep all His decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. This is God's word. Okay, so fun time's over. Fun time's over for Israel. The Red Sea is back to normal now. It's calm. The worship instruments have been put away. They're back in the closet now. And now it's time for the reality of the desert to hit the Israelites. And so it is with us, you know, so it is with us. We come here on Sundays and bask in the wonders of our Savior. 
We sing worship songs as tears run down our faces. And then we walk back out those doors. And for many of us, the desert is waiting on us out there. The desert is out there. Pain is out there. Heartbreak is out there. Disappointment is out there. Dryness is out there. And so, what do we do? What do we do when the singing stops and the desert arrives? We see here in verse 22 that the Israelites were grumbling because they were in the desert and didn't have any water. Okay? That's their problem. Now, it's kind of easy to gloss over this verse, kind of shrug our shoulders at their predicament here. Um, But to truly appreciate the scale of their issue of going three days without water, we need to put ourselves in their situation. Now, think about this. Israel had 600,000 men on foot. That's not including the women and children. So we're talking about probably around 2 million people going through the desert, and many, many livestock, okay? So this ain't a party of five walking through the desert. This is an enormous group of people. This is an entire nation wandering through the desert, okay? And so when you got an entire nation, you got livestock, you got babies, you've got the elderly going three days in the desert without water, kind of is a big deal. So let's take it easy a little bit on the Israelites. (laughs) This actually is a legitimate crisis, okay? It's a legitimate crisis, and this was just a mere three days after they set out from the Red Sea, just three days. And to their relief, the Israelites eventually do find water at Marah. You see that? They find water at a place called Mara. Now imagine finding water in the desert after three days with no water. How, what's your reaction going to be? You're going to be elated, right? You're, you're just thrilled with this. I can imagine just the children, you know, just running straight into the water and playing in it, splashing it on each other. You know, they're, they're making bowls with their hands and just lapping it up, you know. It's like, ah, refreshing water. And then what happens? Did you catch it? (laughs) Then the kids lap the water up, and then what happens? Sorry, front row. They spit it out. Why? Because the water was undrinkable. It was bitter water. In fact, that's why the place was called Mara, because the word Mara means bitterness. It means bitterness. The water they found was not fit for consumption. And so now they're ticked off. They're ticked off. In their disappointment, they respond by grumbling, grumble, grumble, grumble against their God. You know, it's almost as if for Israel, Exodus 14 never happened. Uh-huh. It's like they never walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. It's, not, it's as if the death angel didn't pass over them. It's like none of that ever happened. 
Here they are angry and grumbling at God. They've all forgotten about his rescue. And I think it's rather ironic here that they're grumbling about water. Do you see the irony? You see, three days ago, they had just seen their God totally sovereign over water. Right? Remember the large walls of water <laughs> that they all walked through? They've already forgotten it. <laughs> I love that they're mad about water here when their God just proved himself completely sovereign over water. And so they're grumbling. Do you find yourself grumbling here today about this or that? You know, I promise you, and my wife can testify to this, I can grumble about pretty much anything. Like anything. You know, I could win the lottery and grumble about it because I got to pay all the taxes. I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, all these taxes I got to pay. This is ridiculous. I can grumble about anything. You give it to me, I can grumble about it. I promise. And you say, well, hey, take it easy on yourself, preacher. It's just grumbling. We all do that. It's just a little grumbling. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know if grumbling is just grumbling. Because you see, Psalm 106, verse 7, says this. It says that, quote, Israel rebelled by the sea. End quote. Rebelled by the sea. So that seems to make it seem like grumbling ain't just grumbling. It's not just complaining. It's actually rebellion. It's rebellion. You see, they just weren't grumbling to grumble. They were grumbling against God. That's what they were doing. And in their grumbling, they had all but forgotten how God had rescued them from their slavery. But all but forgotten. And so I get it. Grumbling, you know, it can seem harmless. What's the big deal? But more often than not, grumbling is a sign of dissatisfaction with the way God is running your life. That's what it is. You see, Israel's grumbling about bitter water actually just revealed the bitterness in their heart. I need a little mirror up here so I can, you know, I'm preaching to myself here this morning. Israel's grumbling about the bitter water revealed the bitterness of their heart. This is kind of like a real-life parable, basically. It's a real-life parable. They're grumbling, 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 and amazingly, <laughs> wouldn't you know it, the Lord chooses to immediately provide for his grumbling people. <laughs> Turning the bitter water sweet. Did you see that? He turned the bitter water sweet for them. God here is shockingly gracious to a bunch of whiners. Shockingly gracious. And as you know, especially if you're a parent in the room here, being gracious and loving to whiners ain't easy. That is not an easy thing to do, but God does it all the time. He does it with you, and he does it with me. He is patient. He is kind. He is gentle to whiners. 
Now, Exodus describes, in fact, this chapter describes uh, this whole story as a test for the Israelites. Did you notice that? It said that this is a test. This is no accident. God is sovereignly orchestrating this whole thing. This is a test for Israel. Because, of course, when you think about it, who's in charge here? God. <laughs> Yahweh's in charge. It is Yahweh himself who led the Israelites for three days without water. It was Yahweh himself who then led them to Marah, a place of bitter water. God is in charge. But why did God do this? Why did he test them in this way? Is he mean? Is he a tyrant? Well, actually, no, he's not. So later on, in fact, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, it says this. It actually explains this. Uh, that verse says, it tells us that God tested Israel, not so that his people would fail, but so that they would fear him and trust him alone. See? God is growing their trust in him. He was teaching them with this bitter water encounter to depend solely upon their God for everything. Now, could that be what God is doing right now in your desert? Could it be? Could it be a period of time to make you depend on him more? I don't know, maybe you've been going through life depending a lot on yourself, a lot on your own strength, a lot on your own wisdom, a lot on your own talents. And so maybe your desert is a gift. Maybe it's a gift that can reorient your trust zone, your heart around your God. Could it be? I think Exodus would say yes. I think your desert could very well be what is going to prove to you that his grace is sufficient and that his power is made perfect in weakness. I think the Apostle Paul would agree. So do you hear what he, God is saying to the Israelites? He's saying your water problem is not really the real problem here. Your real problem is an untrusting, self-centered heart that turns into anger and grumbling. You have little trust for your God. That's the problem. And you know, the same message should ring true for us today. For we are not at all different from the Israelites, I promise. I promise. And you push back at this point and you say, now wait a minute, preacher. Wait just a minute. I would never act like that if I'd just seen all that Israel saw. If I just saw walls of water and everything. No, sir. I wouldn't act like this. This is ridiculous. The way they're acting. I would never do that. Uh, yeah, you would. Yeah, you would. If you and me were in this spot, we'd do exactly the same thing. <laughs> exactly the same. Uh, one commentator, he writes this. He says, quote, The reason why Israel acted the way they did is actually transparent. Not because the text itself makes it explicit, but because Israel's error in the desert is the sin common to us all, and the one from which so many of our sins derive, self-centeredness, end quote, self-centeredness. 
It was a, a famous reformer that actually defined sin as the self turned back in on itself. It's the self, the heart, turned back in onto itself. It's self-centeredness. And so this is what God means in verse 26. Verse 26 can be kind of confusing when you first read it, because in verse 26, God reveals to, him, to his people that he is their healer, okay? And so it's confusing because you're like, well, wait a minute, healer, they're not sick. What do you mean? They're not, I mean, what, what do you mean you're the healer? They're not sick. They're thirsty, like really thirsty, but they're not sick. Well, actually, yeah, they are. They're extremely sick. Remember that the Israelites were not at all unlike the Egyptians. Not at all. They were sinners too. They were self-centered too. They too were prone to harden their hearts against their God. As we see right here in this story, don't we? We see it right here. And so the sickness was in their hearts. That's where the sickness resided. It was the sickness of self-centeredness. It was a heart turned back in on itself. That was their sickness. They trusted themselves far more than they trusted their God. And therefore, Israel justly deserved the same diseases that God had put on the Egyptians. They justly deserved it. Remember, that's kind of why they needed the whole blood of the lamb thing. Right? Because the death angel would have come for them too, had they not had the blood of the lamb. Why? Because they're sinners too. <laughs> they're just as wicked as the Egyptians are. They're just as self-centered and idolatrous as the Egyptians. They have a sin sickness in their hearts called self-centeredness. And so God being their healer means that he alone will heal them. It's not their efforts it's not their church attendance. It's not their tithing record. It's not them turning over a new leaf. It's God alone. God will heal their hearts. God will restore them. God will make them whole, both in the physical sense, but even more so in the spiritual sense. Remember, this is really like a real-life parable. So what's happening physically with them is actually also happening spiritually. God is healing them physically, yes, with the with water, but he's also healing them spiritually. God will give them physical and spiritual water and nourishment. And so, after the episode at Marah, the place of bitterness, the Lord then brings them to Elam with 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Elam kind of sounds like a vacation, doesn't it? Right there in the middle of the desert. It kind of sounds like a resort. Because it is. This place is spectacular. This is unbelievable. This is an oasis right here in the middle of the desert that Yahweh has brought his people to. This is an incredible place. He brings them to this special healing place to meet their physical needs ten times over. And so God not only provides for this group of whiners... He provides in abundance, in abundance. So, wow, right? What a God, right? <laughs> and what a deal. What a deal. Did you notice God played, let's make a deal with, the, with Israel? Did you see? Let's make a deal. 
With this story, God showed Israel the simple way things would go for them. Very simple. Very easy to understand. And here was the deal that he played with them. Here's the deal. God will be their God. God will be their healer. Okay? That's his end of the deal. Israel's end of the deal, all they had to do was obey God's commands. That's it. Just do what your God tells you and you'll be good to go. You'll get healing. You'll get paradise. You'll get blessings, etc. Right? Simple. (laughs) What a deal. Easy peasy. God will be their God. God will be their healer. All they have to do is hold up their end of the deal and obey God's commands. Pretty neat, huh? It's just one problem. Israel wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't hold up their end of the deal. Like, at all. (laughs) At all. As we see in today's text, and all throughout, we will see this all throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. And if you've read the Old Testament, you'll see it all throughout the Old Testament. That Israel continuously disobeys their God. They continuously break their end of the, of the bargain. They break their end of the deal all the time. They turn to full bore self-centeredness and idolatry. And sorry to break it to you, but so have you. And so have I. We have rebelled against our Creator since the moment the doctor slapped our fannies. <laughs> we have. And so, what is God to do? What's He supposed to do? Like, He's promised Israel, and by extension, you and me, He's promised to be our healer. But He's also given these conditions, right? Given these conditions. He's given us the law. The moral law that we must obey in order to get the healing, in order to get paradise. And none of us do it. None. So, that kind of puts God in a pickle, doesn't it? It's a pickle. How does God solve this divine dilemma? He's in a dilemma, right? How could he be both our judge and our healer? How can he do both? Well, the answer is with this piece of wood in verse 25. Let's read it together. Verse 25 Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Now, for centuries, theologians have speculated as to what this piece of wood was all about. Some say it represents the Torah, some say it represents the brokenness of Israel. But personally, 
I'm going to go with the interpretation that our early church fathers gave. You see, they saw that this story of the piece of wood here had all the contours of another story with a piece of wood in it. This other story also has elements of bitterness and sweetness. Elements of curse and healing. And this other piece of wood also would be soaked in Mara. All the Mara of our sin. You see, this other story begins in a lowly manger in Bethlehem. And it comes to a head in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, Jesus, too, was presented with a bitter drink. A cup that foamed with the wrath of God against our rebel hearts. This cup was so bitter and so terrifying that Jesus begged his father to let the cup pass from him. But in the end, where we disobeyed, he obeyed. Rather than spitting out the bitterness in the cup, Jesus drank it down to the dregs on the cross. You see, my friends, God didn't give Israel or me or you the diseases we deserved because he gave them to Jesus instead. He got the bitter disease of sin and death so that we could get the sweetness of eternal life. As our substitute, Jesus got Mara so that we could get Elam. My friends, Jesus' cross is the solution to God's divine dilemma. It is at the cross that, G that God is both our judge and our healer, you see. And Paul writes about this divine dilemma and the solution in Romans chapter 3. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time, so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see, it is only at the cross of Christ where we find the healing for our self-centered hearts, for our untrusting, idolatrous hearts. And at the cross is where we find healing for the bitter experiences we face in the desert. Because, yes, the desert is coming for you and it's coming for me. If you're not in it now, you will be soon. But we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Oh, no. In our desert, do you know where we can run? We run to Jesus' desert. We run to the foot of his cross, to his nail-scarred feet, 
we run to our suffering Savior who cried out in his desert, I thirst! And what did they give him? Vinegar. He got no water. He got no refreshment. Why? Because he's our substitute. <laughs> he's our substitute. He got what we should have got. He got the vinegar so that we could get the sweet waters of mercy. <laughs> it is at the cross where we find everything that we need, folks. <laughs> the cross both erases our sins and teaches us to depend upon God alone. It's the cross. It is the sweet grace found at Calvary that heals us. And so, for the Christian, these two pictures, both the law and the cross, are linked. They're linked. They're different, but they are linked. You see, the law comes to us and it absolutely crushes us under its weight. It is too heavy. It is too impossible. We cannot obey. We cannot keep our end of the deal. We cannot obey the law. But there was one who did. And he did it in our place. He was obedient all the way. <laughs> he checked every box. He dotted every I and crossed every T of the law, fulfilling it completely. In fact, Paul says he was so obedient, he obeyed his father all the way to death, even death on a cross. <laughs> And so the two are related. We have the law that crushes us. Into the dust it crushes us. But then the life-giving waters of the cross come in and they raise us to new life in Jesus. Grace comes in, don't you see? Mercy comes in to give us new life in Him. And so when the law makes us dry, bitter, and thirsty, God provides us the solution. <laughs> and he not only provides, he provides abundantly. Overwhelmingly, you see, he gives us living water. He gives us Jesus. <laughs> what else could we possibly need? What else could we possibly want but Jesus? Jesus. 